Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this fourth episode of Series 3, we're looking at personal liability and accountability and the shifting obligations and expectations on financial services firms and their employees. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Rachel Walcott and Todd Eric to take a look at these developing issues and in particular what good is beginning to look like for the evolving management of personal accountability. Hi, Susanna. Thanks for having me, Susanna. Lovely to have you both, and thank you for, for joining. Um, and not only are accountability regimes proliferating around the world, but also firms and their compliance officers need to now also consider an increasingly wide range of non-financial misconduct issues when assessing whether or not particular individuals are deemed to be fit and proper. proper. And individuals need to be considered fit and proper in order to be licensed or registered employees and thus authorised to undertake financial services. It's no longer just a question of whether someone's CV shows they have the professional background, the qualifications, whatever for a role. There's now also the potential for reputational and other damages for firms and implications for the individuals themselves. Examples of non-financial misconduct have included everything from stealing sandwiches from the canteen to failing to pay for train tickets to any outside business interest being under the spotlight. And even if regulators themselves don't take a dim view of certain potential misconduct actions, it is entirely possible that the firm itself will and terminate or otherwise get rid of the employee concerned. Now, all of this is something of a double whammy for compliance officers. Not only do they have to help their firm navigate the continuing requirements of fit and proper, but they themselves, on a personal basis, need to be very wary, potentially, of the widening scope of potential personal liability. So, Rachel, if we're going to start in the UK, where are we now on the UK's senior managers and certification regime? And how does that now extend to non-financial misconduct and fit and proper and and the whole nine yards. Okay, Uh, the UK senior managers and certification uh, regime has been growing uh, in in terms of the firms that it applies to since its original application in March 2016. So that's about a little over five years ago. Uh, Market infrastructure firms, CCPs, CSDs, which are uh, central clearing counterparties, central securities depositories, and payment systems. So this is currently under consultation by HM Treasury to bring these kinds of uh, financial market infrastructure into the senior managers regime. The whole idea of senior managers and certification regime, as you know, is to hold senior individuals accountable when things went wrong and to map responsibilities to certain senior management function designations. And this is off the back of 2008, 2009, where senior individuals, uh, chief executives at firms that failed, seemed to were seen to get off scot-free. There was no liability for them. In fact, many of them retired with big pensions. And 
the mood music in uh, British society and very much across the world was that needs to change. So now with SMNCR, when things go wrong, the regulators should be able to follow the breadcrumb trail to the senior management function holder's door. And the excuse that, well, I didn't know, or that's not my problem, isn't supposed to fly anymore. It's supposed to, you're supposed to know, it's supposed to be your problem. Uh, the UK regulators, as part of SMNCR, have introduced regulatory references, which are supposed to stop this phenomenon that we call rolling bad apples, which is, you know, self-explanatory bad actors moving easily between firms, uh, causing a problem at firm A, getting sacked, going to firm B. Uh, the FCA has always had its eye pre even pre-SMCR on non-financial misconduct, which uh, Susanna talked about in the intro. It's things like behavior that seems immoral, illegal, wrong, or unethical. And the FCA has very much made it known that they don't think there's a place for this kind of behavior in financial services, whether it's financial, you know, for example, market abuse or uh, racial or sexual discrimination in the workplace or, you know, abusive or discriminatory behavior. Uh, Susanna mentioned the example of the senior portfolio manager who was uh, traveling without uh, paying a full train fare for years, being barred for life by the FCA. Now that happened way before SMNCR came in. And the Me Too movement uh, has also given a push to this uh, FCA messaging around fit and proper and non-financial misconduct. They've made it clear that that's a kind of behavior they, that's not acceptable in financial services, broadly because it shouldn't be acceptable in society, and it impacts negatively on firm culture, which regulators would uh, argue which is what SMNCR is all about. It's about culture and conduct. Yes, and, and I would also say that SMCR is, is at least in theory, and I may be being overly cynical, um, at driving better risk-aware behaviours rather than trying to have more enforcement against individuals. They've always been quite clear up front, the UK regulators, that this wasn't an enforcement play from them, but this was a we want you to behave well in the first place play. But what we've yet to see is SMCR truly perhaps showing its teeth, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, Switching to the other side of the pond, Todd, um, holding individuals to account is actually causing a problem potentially in the US. And the New York City Bar Association has just come out, well, relatively recently, with some recommendations on compliance officer liability frameworks. In other words, how and with what criteria regulators should hold compliance officers themselves accountable. So where is all of that going and how does that then also with non-financial misconduct? Um, Interestingly, here in the United States, uh, 
you know, the, there is no such thing or similar to the senior manager's, you know, certification regime. Um, it's it's generally been quite loosely um, without, you know, uh, a, a strict, um, you know, set of regulatory, you know, rules. Um, it's been much, much more subjective. And if you go back now, oh, six or seven years ago, the Department of Justice and, uh, you know, the regulatory bodies started to take a, a more um, uh, aggressive tack in holding individuals accountable. You know, there's, there was something known as the Yates Memo, and I think that was published in like 2013 or 14, um, that said, you know, corporations don't commit wrongdoing, you know, people do. And, you know, therefore, you have to name names and, uh, you know, just finding corporations. And I think a lot of this came out of the, the financial crisis, um, um, you know, look back, you know, several years later that, you know, people actually did these things, not just corporations. Um, so there was, the, I think that kind of changed the, the, the shift in, in, in Tide and it continued for several years. Um, I think it was in 2017 or 18, um, the enforcement director of uh, the SEC um, came out. His name is Andrew Ceresny, and he he really tried to clarify because a lot of compliance officers were were fearful um, that you know if something goes wrong here, you know, is this just a subjective? Um, analysis, whether or not you're going to hold me accountable for something that went wrong in the firm. Um, and he tried to, I think, allay some some fears or concerns and say, and he laid out three basic points. Um, you know, one, were you a participant? Two, did you obstruct or try to cover it up? Or three, was there just wholesale failure or incompetency, you know, or dereliction of duty to, to fulfill your job? Um, and I think that kind of became the standard that, uh, you know, several people have, have advocated for, and I think they've actually begun kind of using that as a standard as to, you know, deciding whether or not to name names or in, and hold individuals accountable in, you know, both civil and of course, obviously criminal activities. Um, that is, um, that led to uh, a couple of commissioners in the last year or so to actually propose and suggest or advocate for the proposal of a set of hard rules. Um, Hester Pierce proposed it last fall, um, and now the New York City Bar Association came out and really clarified that uh, uh, this past summer. Um, I think in all for all intents and purposes or all practical, you know, reality, that is what they are doing. Um, they are, you know, look, you know, looking at these three different measures in deciding whether or not to hold individuals personally accountable. Um, you know, there's several other factors that they then take into account and say, well, we're, was the person hamstrung from a, um, a resources perspective? Or, you know, were there other policies and procedures or uh, things that were in place that maybe should have been better? Or did the, did the compliance officer overlook, 
you know, red flags or miss obvious red flags. So, so there, I, th- I think they're moving in the right direction with it. Um, however, there's still yet to be anything that's actually codified. The other interesting development, I think, in the last several months, um, the new enforcement director at uh, the SEC, a uh, gentleman by the name of Gerber Graywall, um, he has now advocated for um, in civil actions, he wants to do away with um, the very typical practice in the United States of companies or individuals consenting to disciplinary actions without admitting or denying guilt. There's, it's very common to pay the fine without admission or denying the facts or, or without admitting fault. Um, he basically said, you know, this is, you know, not the way you should be doing things. And, you know, if you're going to pay the fine, you're going to admit um, that you did something wrong. So I, I think that trend, um, you know, is remains to be seen, you know, how much how much more difficult does the negotiation process become? Do, do the fines end, end up getting bigger or smaller as a result of it? Um, you know, all of these instances, there's a lot of uh, negotiation between councils as to what exactly the final terms of the settlement agreements are. Um, it, it, uh, you know, it, it's a very fluid situation here in the U.S. Thank you. Yes. And perhaps just to put a wee bit more colour on um, the New York City Bar Association um, document, one of the big concerns they were highlighting was that unless there is clarity as to what compliance officers can be held liable for, good people will leave, stop being a compliance officer, leave the industry, and you won't get good people joining. So it becomes increasingly difficult to raise the standards of compliance across the industry at that point. Yeah, I, I very much agree. It it, it is a challenge. Um, I I think they 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 want to take a, a zero tolerance approach, and you know, similar to what you were saying before, things that are you know, let's say non industry related um, actions outside of the workplace. Uh, you know, a very common area of scrutiny in financial services is what they call outside business activities. Um, you know, there are firm rules, um, you know, or codified rules um, that require you to disclose um, any outside business activities by registered individuals. Um, you know, are you running a business on the side, a consulting business, any conflict of interest, anything whatsoever? I think most firms in the United States have taken a zero tolerance approach for that um, failure to disclose any outside business activity of any kind. Um you know, is grounds for dismissal. Um, I think, uh, you know, obviously more egregious transgressions um, and anything that really becomes public uh, or catches any social media attention or things like that, firms are are really cracking down on, on things like that. There were several instances in the last year that caught major headlines. Um, you know, the college admissions scandal um, resulted in several people, um, you know, who bribed their way to get their kids or allegedly bribed their way to get kids into major universities. Um, some claimed it were they were charitable contributions or, or what have you. Um, the, the spotlight really, really shined on many of those individuals and many w- lost their jobs. Um, 
they, there ended up being criminal, um, you know, uh, lawsuits against them, and, men, and many and most have actually done some sort of jail time and paid significant fines. Um, the SEC, interestingly, actually barred one of the individuals from the industry, uh, a former top executive uh, and one of the asset managers. Um, after having been convicted and, and sentenced to nine months in prison, um, you know, the SEC retroactively said, well, guess what? You're not going to come back into the industry. Here's a bar for life. Um, so so I think I, I think it is interesting in that, uh, you know, they are certainly looking at this. You know, and um, I, I think they are trying to be proactive and, and you know, from a reputational standpoint, um, it's going to be hard for some of those people to re-enter the industry. Thanks, Todd. And, and you know, you could argue that people are paying a high price for this non-financial misbehaviour. But let's remember, you know, integrity, fitness, propriety, they really should be at the core of financial services. And when it hasn't been in the core, that's when the industry has got itself into potentially really quite a lot of trouble, individuals included. Um, Picking up on the barring folks point, um, Rachel, in the UK, FCA barring folks as well, is that what we're up to here? For non-financial misconduct, yes, there has been. There have been some cases where the FCA has banned uh, uh, sex offenders for life from financial services, and but these haven't been people working in banks or you know asset managers or brokers or anything like that. These have been um, uh, independent financial advisors uh, convicted for sexual offenses. Some. It, you know, I guess this is a family podcast. We're not going to go into the details there, but not nice. And I'd say probably about five of them have been banned now, but it hasn't been straightforward. Uh, the most recent ban definitely wasn't an open and shut case. It was uh, a convicted sex offender. Uh, IFA appealed his FCA ban to the upper tribunal and the upper tribunal was not satisfied that the decision to prohibit, uh, make a prohibition order against uh, this uh, individual's uh, sex offender could have been made solely on his criminal conviction. So the FCA is arguing this guy, I think he might have been um, handling um, child pornography or something. He... They were saying, therefore, he is not a fit and proper person to be in financial services. The UPO tribunal said, well, I, we don't think that alone is enough to ban him. But when considered alongside other facts and matters of his case, particularly not being cooperative and open with the regulator, they threw out his appeal. Now, so he's been banned. And that happened in August. Uh, in terms of other non-financial misconduct, uh, what we've seen in the office, we've gotten some insight into via employment tribunals. Uh, and I've seen examples where employees, including compliance officers, uh, were found to have been involved by an employment tribunal in sexual discrimination against colleagues. Now, these people were not banned by the FCA, 
And our colleague, Lindsay Rogerson, who's been on this podcast, has done a lot of reporting on uh, employment tribunals where whistleblowers were hounded and mistreated by senior managers, uh, wrongfully dismissed and whatnot. Now, so far, and I'm not talking about the Jess, the Jess Daly case, the Barclays case. These were cases with Wells Fargo and Royal Bank of Canada. So far, these senior managers haven't been pursued uh, by the FCA um, in any kind of uh, conduct case or you know potential ban at all. So there is kind of a gap. And I think there's some gray areas here. Uh, the regulator has the good intention to keep bad people out of financial services, but it's proving to be a little easier said than done. Um, there was also another case where the solicitor's regulatory authority um, uh, banned or fined a, a senior uh, partner at a firm uh, because he had a drunken night out with a colleague. They thought that was uh, not fit and proper, but he appealed and he won. So uh, it uh, there's no kind of consistent narrative in terms of financial misconduct. I think that's <laughs> the, the main conclusion we can make here. Which makes it even more of a challenge if you're the compliance officer trying to help your firm navigate all of this. So coming back to the other side of the pond, Todd, I mean, Rachel's talked about employment tribunals. So on that side of the pond, wrongful termination, are people objecting to the zero tolerance approach shown by firms? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I'd say things are, are somewhat similar here. Um, you know, there, there are firms who are taking zero tolerance approaches, um, particularly, you know, when it comes to Outside business activities, as I mentioned before, but let's say something else that's, um, you know, is deemed egregious. Um, but we're we're going into a little bit of a subjective or gray area here. Um, what one firm may view as, you know, uh, completely unacceptable, other firms might be willing to, you know, give them a little bit of a pass. Um, so, I I think it's interesting in that. In many of these cases, uh, there there was one quite quite notably ga gathered attention last year a person a person who um, spewed some racist remarks in Central Park when she was walking her dog or or bird watching um, felt threatened by by an African American male um, and it was all caught on video. She was quickly terminated from a, a well known asset management firm. Um, I think she's now suing for wrongful termination. Um, you know, the, I think the regulator is staying out. They, 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 they don't want to touch this. Um, I think individuals, when terminated for any reason at any firm, there is a negotiation that occurs, um, especially with a, with a registered rep. The, the uniform termination uh, uh, form that is filed with the regulators known as the Form U-5. Um, form U-5 disclosures um, it, it can be very detailed or they can be very vague. And 
it, it is negotiated commonly. Um, you know, what gets disclosed on the U-5? Um, how much detail was just a mutual separation agreement? And, uh, you know, historically, it's always been um, a very, in some, some instances, you know, contentious um, discussion. What, what were they terminated for? Um, and because that remains on their record. Um, and it will obviously impact their future ability to get rehired in the industry. Um, I think firms generally do a very good uh, and thorough background checks. There's a lot of companies out there who, who do background checks. They do criminal checks. They, do, they dig in social media. They dig everywhere. Um, but, but it is an area that, uh, you know, is a challenge. Um, and, you know, there is some subjectivity. Um, mm. it, it's, it, it's, it, it's difficult for firms. So if we think about that, that, you know, you could hide, let me use that word carefully, uh, inappropriate behavior because of the negotiated agreement. I mean, how, is there a sense of how well the system then actually works if you can Correct. effectively hide things? I, I would say you could even take it take this discussion to a whole nother level, which which would be a much more in depth discussion. There is a whole, um, I guess, pocket of the legal community that specializes on what they call U five expungement, um, which you can go to an arbitration hearing with Finra and actually get your get these. Um, arbitrate get arbitration awards or things expunged from your record um, if you put the, put enough time and effort into it um, and the regulators have been criticized for in some cases for you know maybe being too generous with expungement of of you know people's records so I but I think it also puts the regulator in a difficult position um, you know is barring somebody from the industry for life, um, you know, for maybe a minor transgression, is, is that an overly harsh penalty? Um, you know, one instance of maybe, a, you know, a, let's say a sale of a product to somebody who's unsuitable or a, a minor conflict of interest, maybe it was, maybe it was accidental or maybe it wasn't a huge trans, transgression. Um, is the person, you know, expected to completely lo- lose their livelihood for the rest of their life? Um, you know, it, it's, it is a difficult challenge for firms, individuals, you know, the attorneys and the regulators. You know, I, I think everybody wants to do what's right and, what, and the best thing, but uh, it's, it's not always, you know, clear cut and easy. No, and there are risk tolerances around all of those sorts of things because one person's egregious behavior is another person's. Well, that always happens. That, that's it, what it, it looks like. Exactly. And I think the regulators here, they, they, they have made clear statements and I think have made an effort to crack down on what they call recidivist, um, you know, repeat offenders. Um, you know, historically, if we go back 10, 20 years ago, um, you know, somebody had a transgression at one of the major firms, you know, the top tier firms. Well, guess what? They ended up at a mid-tier firm, and uh, one more transgression, they ended up at a lower, lower-tier firm. That's what the regulator, I think, wants to do away with. Um, but uh, it, it's it's not always clear-cut, and I think some of the actions recently by the regulators, such as the barring of the CEO 
for the college admission scandal or, um, you know, years after the fact, after the insider trading case at Galleon, um, after the, the individuals, you know, did 10 years in prison, SEC, you know, said, guess what? We, you're barred from life, too. Don't think about coming back into the industry. Um, so I, I, I think they want to send a tough message and a difficult message. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it, it's a challenge. Yeah, I think we're coming back to that word repeatedly, aren't we, Talent? So, Rachel, I mean, from the UK perspective, how much do we have a sense of how much this might be being swept under the carpet? Or do we feel there's a degree of transparency? Uh, it's really hard to say. Uh, I have, I'm not seeing any evidence of this kind of zero tolerance approach from firms, mainly because not every sacking is going to hit the headlines and it's you're not going to know what's happening behind the scenes at firms unless uh, a tribunal or a court case uh, arises uh, from some kind of misconduct or um, sack you know and sacking on the back of it I'd like to take up the point that Todd was making about people making mistakes. I think there is a real element about that that happens. Everybody makes mistakes. And um, so I think that's a good reason not to have a zero tolerance approach, that you you should realize that potentially there was a a problem in your training or or expectations hadn't been... um, uh, communicated seri- uh, clearly enough to certain employees that, like we were saying, there is a real uh, mistakes happen, and it's, it doesn't uh, indicate any malice necessarily. I, um, I, I would sorry. agree, and I'll, I'll confirm that that I, I think they want to they want to be um, transparent, and in some areas they are zero tolerance. Any. Any misappropriation or theft, yeah. Period. That's, yeah. I, even if it's one dollar, they, 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 that that that's a zero tolerance. But accidentally selling somebody the wrong product or this or that 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 might be borderline or subjective in some way, shape, or form. I think they they. I don't want to say they want to give the benefit of the doubt, but let's say they they would be more willing to show leniency, um, and not take a zero tolerance approach. Mm. Um, but surely so it, there has it is to be subjective. a sliding scale there. You know? Oh, yeah. Correct. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you've got, if you're making lots of mistakes, there's got to be a, commu- a cumulative effect of that, right? Yes. Um, that you're, the firm's liability to, uh, to uh, some kind of legal action by a client or a um, enforcement action by a regulator is going to increase when there are lots of mistakes happening because it also might potentially shows that your systems and controls aren't there your training's not there but uh todd also mentioned uh somebody who is a high flyer at a a top tier firm they might engage in some bad behavior then they go down to a mid-tier the midterm tier firm susses them out they get bounced down now that's what we call the rolling bad apples here in the uk um, it seems like the bad apples could roll any which way. They were kind of gravity-defying apples, which brought to the, uh, brought about the regulatory references, which are kind of, I, I don't know, they're not 
the equivalent of U5s, but it's, it's something that you're supposed to have when you're joining a firm. And so we haven't seen a huge amount of data or commentary from UK regulators on how these are working uh, in terms of, you know, we've seen 10 regulatory references that didn't pass muster or whatever. What we have seen is in the FCA's 2019 stock take on the uh, SMNCR, how, you know, how's, how's it going? Um, said improvement was needed in terms of the quality, consistency, and timeliness for regulatory references. So, you know, firms were just kind of slow. Maybe they weren't particularly enlightening <laughs> references. It's hard to know. It would be interesting to find out more about what's on these. But as Todd was saying, I'm sure a lot of these are negotiated as well. Uh, what we've also seen from the Central Bank of Ireland, though, is that they're complaining that firms aren't doing enough to make sure people are qualified to kind of walk in the door, you know, let alone uh, meeting fitness and probity expectations. So that's something to think about, too. And as Susanna mentioned at the beginning, we have fitness and probity uh, regimes all across Europe now. They came in as part of uh, CCR, I think it was. Um, there's also, you know, governance language in MIFID too. So you know, this is something people across Europe need to be thinking about. And uh, even in, uh, in many European uh, final notices, I'm thinking of AMF in particular, that's a French regulator. They always talk about, you know, this was a senior person. You know, they have they have certain kinds of uh, uh, expectations for behavior and whatnot. Um, just anecdotally, just to repeat that, some of my contacts are saying that they are, you know, expecting there will be horse trading going on with these regulatory references, especially amongst the senior people, and. Uh, I was talking to um, Christian Hunt about this the other day, and he mentioned that he thinks that firms might be more willing to throw the book at junior staff who might not have the clout to challenge um, uh, findings. Um, and he also said that these references might just pick up on obvious offenses and wouldn't report on somebody's kind of toxic personality or kind of other behaviors that might fly under the radar and just cause a lot of problem for conduct and culture in your in your team. So it, it's I, like I, I said, we have firms, no clarity. It is a yeah. real challenge for them to give what, when I was still head of compliance, what was called a dirty withdrawal. Yeah, because it reflects badly on them. How did they end up with somebody who was behaving inappropriately? Did they not have the right hiring processes, not the right training processes, policies and procedures in place? I think there is still very much a real nervousness that a bad withdrawal, however that's then actually articulated publicly, reflects badly on the firm. And firms have a real reluctance about it. I mean, for all that it's their responsibility, their obligation, they understand what the rules are, doesn't change the fact they're really reluctant to shine a light on the fact that they managed to have this potentially egregiously badly behaved person working for them. 
Yeah, but the regulators ought to be picking up on that as well. If they're seeing no negative regulatory references, then they must know that something's something's amiss and that there's some like I said, horse trading going on or, you know, quietly shoving people out the door, which undermines the whole point of it, which is to stop the rolling bad apples. Um, this is person's going to show up somewhere else. And I don't know. I don't know if there's any kind of legal passing of the buck here. Um, it, it'd be interesting to see if eventually firm A sued firm B for not giving a proper regulatory reference when they should have known about something, uh, it then landed them with some terrible person who wound up causing a lot of trouble. I mean, they probably wouldn't admit it either, but you know, that's, I guess that's another risk. Yes, I, I would definitely agree. It's another risk. Um, Gosh, I'm aware the time is, is marching on on us. Let, I'll just ask some big questions before we go on to, to takeaways. Um, Todd, let me, it's a big, broad question. Does holding individuals to account in the US work to actually improve financial markets? Um, improve financial markets, um, I think, is too broad. Um, I think the trend is for more personal accountability. And I think it obviously, you know, from a reputation standpoint, firms are very conscious about it. Um, and I think they want to improve their financial, or, or let's say their public reputation uh, of these financial services firms. Um, I, You know, I've spoken to many people in the industry and they said, you know, 25 years ago, you know, being a financial advisor was, you know, a respected profession. And he said, and now it's 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 viewed the exact opposite. You know, oh, you're you're a greedy scoundrel of some sort. Um, where so I think firms are very careful and conscious of it. Does it actually impact the financial marketplace? Um, I, I think it's that's up for debate. Um, you know, it certainly doesn't. Uh, improve or affect the, the quality of trade execution or market performance, you know, whether or not you make money or successful with your investments or what have you. But I, I think reputational uh, risk is, is or reputational damage, um, you know, is important uh, for in, in the industry, kind of unlike ever before. Yeah, I have to say I agree, and, and this is deeply unscientific, but I think the next generation, I think that ages slightly all of us here, they're not rushing into financial services. The, you know, I think that's, it's an image problem, a reputation problem. It's a, they're not, the bright young things, they're not rushing off to be financial services, whatever. Yeah, I just saw a, uh, a survey, uh, I think it was from the CFA uh group, they were saying that a lot of uh, young people didn't want to come into uh, financial services unless they could demonstrate that there was some sort of value or purpose to what they were doing. Now, I think that, and it was a really high percentage, we can put the uh, survey in the show notes. I think it's worth looking at. And I've also noticed that um, uh, ISDA is doing a future leaders uh, uh 
program now. So I, I, I sense that part of that is to, you know, keep keep the talent moving through that industry that's had a lot of misconduct issues. I, I would clarify or confirm. I, I, I agree with you to a certain extent, and I think you touched on something there, Susanna. I think there are some who are now re-looking you know, or taking a second look at the industry. There was a huge trend over the last decade, you know, post-financial crisis, oh, you know, for the brightest, smartest, you know, college graduates, oh, they wanted to go work at someplace cool, you know, Google, Amazon, Apple, where, wherever, um, and, you know, kind of frowned upon Wall Street because of, you know, the misdeeds and problems of the financial crisis. I think in the last year or two, um, they're having a second look at it and say, you know what, uh, you know, the focus on ESG and and things like that, maybe firms are trying to do the right things. And maybe I can make an impact in, in banking and financial services um, and do good things in society. Um, because I, I think from an image and reputational standpoint, firms have, have uh, you know, tried to uh, shine that, that positive light on some of the good things they can do in society. So yeah, I, I think that, that, that wind may be shifting a little bit. So Yeah. And and the kids will be kids and do exactly what they want, no matter what their parents have to think on the subject. So um and, and exactly. just, <laughs> just picking up on ESG for one moment, series uh episode three of this particular season, we, we focus very much on ESG. So if you're interested in ESG, please do listen to that one. Um, in terms of takeaways for compliance officers, and there's so many challenges associated with personal accountability and individual liability, I would suggest if you are a head of compliance or a compliance officer, think about yourself first. I mean, I know that doesn't happen very often for compliance folks, but think about yourself first about how you would evidence the discharge of your obligations and the regulatory expectations around your role. And then when you've got that hardwired, and it will be different for each firm, each business, depending on business activities and all the rest of it. But once you've done that for yourself as head of compliance or compliance officer, you can then roll that out culturally, um, policy and procedure wise, whatever it happens to be, record keeping, key part of this to everybody else. But I think do it for yourself first, because then it will be real. And then you can use yourself as an example. And that always helps when explaining stuff to other people about expectations. So takeaways for compliance officers. Rachel, any particular things they need to worry about, think about, do or not do? Um, I think accountability is a cultural issue and hiring the right people uh, throughout the firm is really important. Uh, you want to make sure that you're getting qualified people uh, who can learn what learn the ropes and learn what's what's expected and what's uh, discouraged. And my other big uh, suggestion would be at a time when we're seeing a lot of kind of miracle tech solutions for firms in terms of monitoring conduct and uh, culture look uh, using AI to track uh, behavior of, of, of all different kinds. I would definitely get out there, 
um, use your eyes and ears to judge what's actually happening in your firm instead of just looking at metrics and surveys. You want to have a first uh, level uh, encounter instead of having a having uh, observations that are somewhat removed. And on top of that, I would say know your people. Now, I think it's difficult to do that uh, in this hybrid working environment we're in now, but um, I also think that you know managers of all kinds need to be communicating with their teams. It's you know if you've got a big firm, it's going to be difficult for one manager who's got five thousand people to or I'm, I'm sure that's kind of an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. If you have a huge team, maybe you want to break it up a little bit and say, you know, ha like have somebody who's looking out for, you know, maybe 10 or 20 people, kind of a point person, you know, feedback concerns that way. Have it be like very much a conversation instead of judging people through a screen, which I think is not going to work. So know the, know your people in real life. <laughs> That's, that is my takeaway. Yeah. Uh, I, I think given hybrid easier said than done, but yes, very valid point. Todd, takeaways from your perspective? Um, I, I, I would kind of agree with what Rachel just said. Uh, I think in the U.S., um, obviously, you know, common sense prevails. Um, and I think the, you know, New York City bar suggestions on 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 personal accountability, you know, are are very logical. I mean, and they're they're essentially ripped right from the playbook of Andrew Ceresny four years ago. Um, and Hester Pierce's proposal, and I think it is a common sense approach. Um, if anything doesn't, you know, pass the sniff test, um, you know, firms need to be conscious of uh, of uh, you know doing the right thing, and also realize. And I think everybody is very cognizant of it. Um, the the hyper public awareness. Um, if anything doesn't smell quite right, guess what? It's going to get spread. Very quickly over the internet and publicly, and um, you know, so I, I think by and large, most compliance officers at most firms are very aware of this and uh, are are trying to do what is in the best interest of a the client, b the firm, c themselves, and you know, the greater good of the industry. So. Uh, perfect note to end on. Thank you very much, uh, Rachel and Todd. I think that was a fascinating discussion on personal accountability. And we will be coming back to this because it is a subject that has endless challenges and endless implications and ramifications for firms and individuals themselves. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, we hope you found it both interesting and useful. We'll put a bunch of links in the episode notes um, to the survey that uh, Rachel mentioned and a couple of articles which go into a bit more detail on some of these issues. I'll also pop in a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. As ever, last but not least, very much appreciated if you take the time to review the podcast and do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Thank you for listening. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.